All right. Really, it's very dark, and you're all wearing masks, so I feel like I'm talking to no one. But anyway, um, that, maybe that's good. Okay, so we're in Isaiah 35, and I'm going to read this text to start with. As the desert and the parched land will be glad, the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Oh, this time, uh, there's a, this time of year, there's a lot of music going on for me. You could say actually any time of year there's a lot of music going on, but uh, particularly at this time of year. And last weekend, um, all of Sunday and then Monday night, I spent uh, at the school where I work, we were putting on a very traditional service of lessons and carols. It involved um, a giant choir, an organ, uh, an orchestra, all sorts of palaver, candlelight. And after the hours and hours of rehearsal, I definitely had um, some of those very traditional Christmas carols stuck in my head. And then last week, when I, when I wasn't at work, um, we went on our annual family trip to go and get the Christmas tree, And um, at which time Isabella prescribes the obligatory listening to Christmas songs. And um, in the Christmas songs, it's a little less once in Royal David's City and a little bit more, all I want for Christmas is you and some hideous song called Santa Baby or something, use your imagination. Um, but whichever sort of Christmas music you're listening to this time of year, I think you're going to find countless lyrics that suggest to you that Christmas is a season for joy and celebration. You've got your more traditional lyrics such as, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to you, O Israel. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Or the classic, which Brad did offer to sing on repeat this morning. Uh, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. But I was thinking about some of those less traditional Christmas songs. Even those ones suggest that you should be having a good time at this time of year. You've got, have a holly jolly Christmas, it's the best time of the year. I don't know if there'll be snow, but there'll be a cup of cheer, apparently. 
Um, it's the most wonderful time of the year with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And maybe my favourite, tis the season to be jolly, fa la 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 la, etc. Um, it is just widely understood, isn't it, that Christmas is a season of joy and celebration. But the problem is that there are just so many things at this time of year that don't make people feel happy. The roads get a bit crazy, things at work get a bit crazy, the shops get crazy, everyone at home gets a bit crazy, and there's all sorts of stresses and pressures. Work, home, extended family. When Brad asked me recently about how I was feeling about some upcoming events, I have to confess that my natural unfiltered response was, I feel a deep sense of dread. When Melinda was organising this teaching series, if you haven't been around, we're in this Advent series where we're exploring the four main themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy and love. Uh, she originally assigned me to last week where we were exploring the theme of peace. I thought that was lovely. Uh, and then, of course, because of my college carols last week, I had to trade weeks to this week. And when I saw that the theme was joy, I just groaned inwardly. And I thought to myself, how can I with any sort of integrity, teach about joy when I feel so tired and grumpy. Now, you could say I did ask myself, is this just my tendency toward pessimism? I tend to be a little bit glass half empty. Is everyone else around just bouncing about with glee while I'm in a glum kind of mood? Well, some scientists do say that 50% of our happiness is genetic. So as far as how happy we feel, it can be helpful to acknowledge that we are just all wired with different dispositions. But actually, a problem with negativity is not just me and my wiring. This week I learnt that as people, we have a tendency to be more sad than glad. Neuroscientists tell us that humans actually have a negativity bias. One neuroscientist, Rick Hansen, describes it this way, your brain is like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive ones. In other words, in our broken human state, we are unfortunately wired to forget the good and obsess over the bad. And the times that we're living in haven't done much to help that, have they? On a global scale, in the midst of this pandemic, these have been difficult days. Not helped by the fact that we live with a 24-hour news cycle at our very fingertips that is built to profit from our tendency toward negativity and fear. We're constantly feeding our minds with negativity, and so people are fragile and vulnerable. On a more local community level, these have been challenging times, haven't they? We suddenly found ourselves um, not leaderless, but lead pastorless, uh, we, and then we found ourselves homeless, you could say, uh, with our building being acquired. It's a season of uncertainty and change, and we know that change for many people breeds fear. We acknowledge that this Christmas season itself, for many people, is not a cause for happiness but the very thing that makes us feel the acute pain of social isolation or loneliness, that exacerbates mental or physical health challenges, or that digs up the pain of our relational brokenness. So what do we do about the pursuit of joy, this Advent theme? Do we have to just fake it till we make it? Or do we decide that it's just something too lofty, unattainable, unreasonable, and instead just choose to sit in our gloom? 
Or is there somewhere in this Advent season a cause for real joy? Well, of course, before we launch into finding joy, we, we should, I should, define what it is that I think we're looking for. What is joy? That might seem a little bit basic, but I know there's lots of people who wrestle with, ooh, like, what's the difference between joy and happiness? And some people define them differently. I'm not going to go there this morning. I'm pretty simplistic. So my simple approach is I take joy as being what we consider delight, pleasure, happiness, um, but also acknowledging the fact that joy is more than just a feeling or an emotion. Especially for people who follow the way of Jesus, there is something about joy that relates to the inner condition of our hearts. And as we take on the heart of Jesus, we know that God does do a work of healing and restoration in us that does bring us true joy. So with that in mind, as our definition, we're going to, we're going to think about this passage in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah, interesting book, don't know how much you've read it, and uh, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, Melinda really helpfully explained these two things to us, but I'm just going to recap quickly, because I think when you read something, it's helpful to understand two things, the genre and the context. Firstly, the genre, we know you don't read a newspaper the same way you read a fictional novel, well... You might sometimes, but not usually, because they're different sorts of genres. And so we have to understand that Isaiah is a prophetic book. That means Isaiah, he was a real man, but he was inspired in a very unique way by God to see and then speak forth future realities of God's plans and purposes for the world. Quite amazing. And then he wrote that down, and we've still got it today. And one of the unique things we not acknowledge about biblical prophecy is that many of the prophecies have what we call, well, some people term it a now and a not yet aspect to their fulfillment. That is, they often had uh, some sort of uh, fulfillment in the not too distant future, so a now aspect, and then a not yet fulfillment, a fuller fulfillment of that promise or prophecy that was coming in the future. And that's the case with the chapter that we're considering today. We find that actually what was promised there has already been partially fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, the now, you could call that, but it awaits its complete fulfillment in Jesus' second coming, the not yet that we're still looking forward to. So why would we study Isaiah, this prophetic book, at Christmas during the Advent season? Seems a bit weird. Maybe we should be in Luke or something, at least one of the Gospels. Um, but we know Advent is a season of anticipation. And it's actually not just about anticipating the celebration of Jesus' first coming. It's also about waiting and longing for his second coming. So if we want to discover the joy of Advent, I think that it has something to do with not just celebrating Jesus' first arrival here on earth, but looking toward the promise that he is going to return again. So we're going to think about that this morning. That's the genre. And then the context of Isaiah's book, we know that his ministry spanned the years from the late 700s BC into the uh, mid-600s BC, so a long time ago. Um, and his ministry was during that time of the divided kingdom, when the 12 tribes of Israel basically split up into two factions. And Isaiah's ministry was centered in the southern kingdom, uh, what was referred to as Judah. And what do we know about these people? Uh, who were who the first listeners to this word of prophecy? Well, the people there were under threat. Uh, the, the first threat was from Assyria, who were the dominating global world power at the time. And then that was followed by uh, another serious threat from Babylon. And of course, eventually, it was the Babylonians who carried them off into exile. So they were, they were in a dangerous kind of season. 
And of course, that context matters because those people were living in difficult times. They were under threat of foreign attack, which of course is the cause for great fear. It's cause for unsettledness. It's cause for uncertainty. And you could say our world is not, you know, our country is not currently under threat of foreign attack, but we are certainly experiencing that unsettledness and uncertainty. And so though this is an ancient prophecy, I think it still speaks to us today. So we're going to work through the text just for a little bit. We're going to look for where we can find joy. And I'm going to chop it up into three sections. I think we find joy in seeing three things restored. So look for these. The first one we're going to look at is creation restored. The second one is the people restored. And the third one, and my favorite one, is hearts restored. So first of all, thinking about creation restored, if you want to look again at those first two verses, this is where we see this picture of creation being literally restored. Because the the desert, the parched land, it says, will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It's rejoicing greatly, shouting for joy. And then there's these funny words about Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon. Uh, What we're getting here, Isaiah paints a vision of barren and parched places suddenly springing up with this fresh, unexpected growth. Wastelands are unexpectedly filled with flourishing and thriving life. Imagine that. Kind of thought, um, well, there's this funny reference to Carmel and Sharon, and I'm not very good with geography, so that just, you know, sounds to me like, why is it not Susie and Sandy, Carmel and Sharon? Um, But we know this this prophecy is spoken to the people in the southern kingdom, and that region tended to be a little more barren and desolate than some of the regions in the north, and apparently the uh, Mount Carmel and the Sharon Plain and Lebanon, uh, they were places in the north that tended to be much more lush and green, even during the summer. It's a bit like saying to someone in Alice Springs, you know, your land's going to spring forth like you were in far north Queensland. Okay, that's that's the kind of picture that he's conjuring up here. So this is a promise that one day all the barren places are going to become lush. Now, of course, a promise like that is bigger than just the land's going to get green. It's not going to be so dusty and dry. Because for the people of Isaiah's day, land is livelihood. If the land flourishes, the people will flourish. And an abundance of life for the land means an abundance of life for the people. And of course, the fullness of life, um, you know, that that means there's enough food on the table, that means there's enough money to pay the taxes. But it's also bigger than that, because right at the end, part of this fullness, he says there at the end of verse 2, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. That is, the beauty of creator God himself is going to be seen in this restoration of creation. Somehow, in this regenerating work, the glory of God, that is his inherent value, the weightiness of his worth, and his splendor, that's his majesty and his dignity, those things are going to become evident to all the people. And the result of all that, all that flourishing life is joy. The land's glad, the desert's rejoicing, and maybe that's a bit of a poetic sort of literary device, personification, human characteristics given to things that are not human. Um, But of course, what's clear, even, even if it's that literary device, is that this restoration of the beauty of creation is cause for great joy. So we think about the fulfillment of this promise. Um, How has the restoration of creation already been fulfilled? And what is it that we're still waiting and longing for? 
We think about Jesus' first coming, asking, oh, how, has the, you know, how was creation restored in Jesus' first coming? Um, actually, I couldn't really get my head around it first because Jesus didn't, you know, he went around doing all sorts of amazing things, but he didn't go around commanding deserts to suddenly become lush. That wasn't on his list. In fact, the only thing I could think of first came to my mind was that funny story in Matthew 21 where he actually curses a fig tree and a fig tree that was perfectly lush withers away and dies. That's kind of the the opposite. That wasn't helpful. Um, But then I thought about hints of it. What, What does Jesus do in relation to creation? Of course, as that moment probably more than one, where he encounters a storm that is creation in a state of chaotic destruction. And with a word, he commands the storm to cease and he restores order and calm. That you could say that's bringing life out of barrenness or chaos. Or things like when there's that huge crowd out in a barren place and they've got nothing to eat. What does Jesus do? He just suddenly multiplies all the food, quite literally putting food on the table and bringing an abundance in unexpected places. I think the the, the, uh, prophecy has already been partially fulfilled like that. But what is this not yet, the future that we wait for in Jesus' second coming? Well, God promises that when Jesus returns to the earth, it will be restored and renewed. That is, the brokenness caused by the fall will be reversed and the deteriorating state that we currently see creation in will be fully restored. And if you're like me, we ache and we long for that day when all of creation will live in harmony and the planet's no longer plagued by the kind of problems that we currently battle, such as the alarming effects of climate change and all sorts of other problems. And then we know at that that, that day there will be an abundance of joy. Now that for me is a little bit a little bit out there, like good, one day creation will be restored. So let's think a little bit more on a, you know, my life here today. What is there for us here as, as far as finding joy in this Advent season goes? I think there's three things. The first one for me, maybe this is just downright too simplistic. Um, um, if you think that, that's fair. Um, but I do think there's something here uh, um, about the fact that being in creation sparks joy. Even in creation's current deteriorating state, I think there's something of the goodness and the beauty of God that can be seen and experienced when we're out amongst creation. Uh, We know that the importance of being in nature is widely acknowledged for its positive mental health benefits. My favourite one is the Japanese practice, what's called Shinrin-yoku, or translated forest bathing, uh, which was this practice they started, which, which suggests you've got to get out amongst the green for them into a forest. Uh, and they did all sorts of research to prove that it reduces your blood pressure and your stress levels. Quite amazing. Um, I think this value of uh, observing the glory of God in creation is really important and sometimes overlooked in our busy states, especially this time of year. So I'm going to encourage you during this Advent season, if, if you have to spend any sort of time in a hideous shopping centre, which for me, you know, they're, they're full of lights, they're full of noise, but they're void of life uh, in my books. And then maybe let's, be, let's make sure that we balance that time with some time in, in the outdoors. I think it's really important as far as finding joy in the Advent season goes. The second thing, uh, as this prophecy so visibly captures, there's joy to be found in the restoration of creation to its original intended flourishing state. This Christmas season can unfortunately too easily be riddled with unnecessary and mindless waste. 
the byproducts of our excessive living that just get poured into landfill. And I think if we care at all about the acute problem of climate change that stems from our rampant consumerism, then we'll work hard during this season to lessen our impact. Is it possible that a thoughtful and careful approach to Christmas, especially in terms of our impact on the planet, could possibly be cause for joy? I think so. Um, but if you don't think climate change is a theological problem, um, I'm referring you to Brad. He just wrote a 6,000-word paper on climate change and theology, etc. It's a riveting read, and I'm sure that he'll passionately explore the topic with you if you want to think about that climate change. Um, the third thing, trying to bring this home, is that there's joy to be found in looking beyond ourselves during this season. I think part of the rejoicing of the land in this prophecy is about its productivity, the fact that it gives life to the people, and not just a select group. It gives life, there's enough for all the people because of the abundance. There is joy when there's an abundance to be shared by everyone. I think if we want to find the joy of this Advent season, then it has to have something to do with giving away what we would otherwise keep for ourselves. Now, we know there's so many great initiatives now in terms of ways that you can buy a meal for someone. I saw that one the other day at the Salvos. They got a, a great new thing where you can literally just buy a meal. Um, we know all sorts of Christmas initiatives where you can buy a a goat for a family or buy a community a well or some medical supplies or whatever it is. I'm a big fan of all of those things and I strongly encourage them at Christmas time. But if I'm honest, what's sometimes harder for me is the more personal acts of sharing abundance that costs us something, sometimes money and some, sometimes something that's for us as very blessed people, something, something harder than sharing our money. There's this man who often sits out the front of our local shopping centre and he sells his, he sells his stories, um, stories that he's written. And I confess that there's way too many times when I've rushed past him. He's always waiting for someone um, to talk to, someone to listen. And one time I did sit and, ch and I chatted with him. I had got one of his stories and read it. It was very hard to understand. Um, there's plenty of times when I didn't sit down and talk to him. And so if I really wanted to be challenged about generosity and abundance, I'd have to say to myself, okay, if I see him during the Christmas rush, even if I'm so under the pump and I don't have time, I'm going to sit and talk to him. Because clearly that's what he's looking for more than money. So I pose that to you as well. What act of generosity would really cost you something, but potentially bring both you and someone else some real joy this Advent season. Someone to reach out to, someone who's on their own, invite them in for a meal. Let's think about that. All right, now the second section is about, that's creation restored. The second section is about people being restored. And it starts with this idea, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Um, this season, uh, this, this section really gives us an insight into the state that the people are in, in Isaiah's day, right? They're weak and they're wobbly. They've got wobbly knees and their hearts are apprehensive and uneasy. There are people under fret, threat and they're feeling it. We know they're living amongst oppression and suffering, which is cause for fear. And so in this season, if you find yourself a little anxious or in a state of panic, you are not alone. 
Interestingly, to those people, Isaiah says a word of encouragement needs to be spoken to fill them with courage. This be strong, do not fear. Um, That sounds a little bit like, you know, get your chin up, you'll be okay. Um, But these are not trite or empty words because there's a good reason why they don't need to fear. Uh, He says it there, your God will come. What is he coming to do? He will come to save you. God is coming to save. God is coming to deliver. And true joy is ultimately born out of salvation. Salvation is God stepping into and changing our reality, breathing life into the things that we thought dead. Now, interestingly there, when he describes salvation, he uses two words that are a little bit alarming to me, vengeance and retribution, which they just sound a bit ominous. Uh, It's helpful, though. I I looked them up because I thought, wowzers, Um, you know, that sounds a bit heavy. Uh, When I looked at the idea of vengeance, really interesting that it was not just the idea of revenge. It's actually a much fuller concept where, yes... God will take care of the enemies, that's going to happen. But the concept of vengeance carries the idea of God making things right. That is, God, when he saves, he's coming to balance the scales of justice. He's coming to right the wrongs of oppression and tyranny and the brutality of slavery. And what happens when God breaks through to bring this salvation? Well, it says all these amazing things happen. Blind eyes are opened. Deaf ears are unstopped, the lame are walking again, the mute can speak and shout and sing. This is a picture of God transforming our human desolation. The sorrow and suffering that we currently experience because of the brokenness of our human experience is done away with and it's replaced with wholeness and healing. It's a beautiful picture. So let's think about the now and the not yet fulfillment of this restoration of people. Well, this one's a little bit more direct, isn't it? If you think about how was this fulfilled um, when Jesus came the first time, uh, most of those things just ring true. If we know the Gospels and the kind of things Jesus did. uh, But this made me think of that place in Matthew where John the Baptist, who we know was the guy who had to pave the way for the Messiah, he's stuck in prison and he hears the news of this stir that this guy Jesus is creating. And so he just wants to be sure, you know, is this the guy? So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah who we've been aching and longing for? And Jesus says to those disciples, he says, go back and tell John everything that you see and hear. And this is exactly what he says. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That's a bit funny. Is Jesus just being a bit cryptic? Why doesn't he just, you know, John says, are you the Messiah? Why doesn't he just say, yep, it's me, I'm the guy? Uh, Well, there's plenty of reasons why he doesn't do that. But one of them is that he knows that John knows the prophecies. He knows that this is exactly what what prophets like Isaiah said that the Messiah would do. And so to John, saying those things is just as clear as him saying, yep, it's me, I'm the one, I'm the Messiah, because he's doing all that the Messiah uh, was promised would do. And that's the joy of Christmas, isn't it? It's like in the Luke passage when the angels pop up to the shepherds and say to them, don't be afraid. And they say this thing, I bring you good news that will be cause for great joy for all 
the people. Because today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you, and he is the Messiah, the Lord. They're saying salvation has come. And this is good news that's going to make everybody joyful. Because God has come to deliver his people. But of course, in a sense, salvation has not yet come in full, has it? Not everyone who was sick during Jesus' time on earth was healed. There's plenty of people who missed out. And even the ones who were healed died eventually. Their healing was temporary, you could say. So there has to still be this not yet, this future fulfillment of this prophecy. God promises that when Jesus returns, that people will be fully restored. The brokenness of the fall will be reversed and the deteriorating state of our human bodies will be restored. And that means no more sickness, no more physical suffering, no more COVID. That's exciting. And so we ache and we long for that day. And all those of you who daily battle physical or mental health challenges, ache with me for that day when we won't fight those things anymore. We look forward with joy and anticipation to God restoring in full. What is there for us here as as far as finding joy right now goes? Well, the first thing is, I think it's just a word of encouragement in whatever battles you're facing. Yes, we ache and we grieve, but we don't have to wallow. We can find joy as we set our minds on that coming day. God is coming to save. God is coming to make all things right. The second thing here is that there's, there's something about the promise of salvation and vengeance that relates to the ending of oppression and injustice. I think it's something about partnering with God as he sets the wrongs of the world right. We don't have to wait till the end for that. He's already about doing that work now. His kingdom has come and is coming. It begs the question, I think, is our lack of joy sometimes a result of our self-obsession? Our focus on our own happiness and our looking for that happiness in the only places where the world we live in knows how to find it. I mean, if we believed what our social media feeds might tell us, then we'll be looking for our happiness in that next lovely brunch out with our friends or the next exotic holiday in Australia somewhere, of course, Um, that next materialistic acquisition, fashion, homewares, accessories for your bike, some people. Um, Don't get me wrong, I really love good food and a beautiful holiday, I highly recommend them. Um, But they're beautiful and joyful experiences, but they are temporary, aren't they? And I've got a feeling that lasting joy has something to do with the pursuit, not of my own happiness, but the happiness of others, and more specifically, to do with partnering with God to bring about the end of oppression and and injustice. What does that look like? It looks like partnering with God to see an end to slavery, to see an end to domestic violence, to see an end to racism and the inequality experienced by Indigenous Australians, to see an end to war, an end to the refugee crisis, an end to hunger and food insecurity, an end to homelessness, and the list goes on. Is this a problem too big to tackle? Absolutely. But it's not a problem too big to play one small part in. 
Now, we'd need the next several hours to explore that idea properly, but I think this morning we should ask a pertinent Christmas question because it is without doubt that in a world driven economically by capitalism, the epidemic of excessive consumerism is feeding many of those issues of social justice. That is the idea that what I buy is linked to those problems of slavery and inequity and hunger. So I think if we want to find true joy this Christmas, we want to consider carefully what we're purchasing. Who are we really purchasing it from? Who made it? Who's really benefiting from it? Why are we really purchasing it anyway? Maybe the key one, am I driven by what will hurt my pocket the least or will what or by what will hurt people the least. Well, let's just, uh, as we finish, let's just look briefly at these last verses, the end of verse 6 into verse 10. Um, the first ones there are really similar to the opening verses. Get another picture of creation being restored and there being unexpected life. There's more water gushing about and dry places um, becoming lush. But then he launches into this description of a highway. You know, verse, verse 8, he says, a highway will be there in this flourishing land. Now, if you're like me, I, you know, I, when I picture flourishing land, I do not picture highways. Um, but this is a little different to the Torrens to Darlington project. Uh, the focus here, if you think about what's said in the verses, the focus is not about transportation. This is actually a visual picture, something people get their, get their heads around, about a way of living. He calls this highway the way of holiness. We're told the wicked can't journey there. Uh, other things about it, it's a way of safety and security. Um, I thought... Levi is a great animal lover. When it says the lions are gone, I thought, oh no, he'll be sad. Um, but of course, it's pictorial, isn't it? It's saying there's no threat. There's no threat of harm anymore. Everyone on this way is perfectly safe. Uh, only the rescued and redeemed people of God are here on this way. And what characterizes them, if you were there amongst them? Well, they're characterized by joy. They're singing. They're glad. And we're told that all of their sorrow and sighing has been done away with. Now, at face value, when I read that, you know, the wicked are gone, the ravenous beasts are gone, it sounds a little bit like this special way of holiness. Um, it's got all the good people on it, and all the bad people have been banished. Um, I think that's really dangerous, uh, what, you know, what I take at face value, because if you look at how these people are described, they're not described as good. They're described as the redeemed. That means they're the ones who've been restored and renewed. In fact, they were just as bad as everyone else. But God's done an amazing work of restoration in them. These are people whose hearts have been restored. Not just their physicality, but their hearts have been restored to reflect the holy way of God. Their brokenness has been done away with and now they can truly reflect the beauty of God. And it's in this restored state they're no longer plagued by their own brokenness, but instead, they're overwhelmed with great gladness and joy. So, the now and the not yet here in these last verses. Well, how did Jesus already fulfill this um, prophecy? 
Think about Jesus' ministry. He does so many physical healings. Sometimes they're the things that we remember. But actually, what he's most concerned about is restoring people's hearts. Uh, Even when he's doing a work of physical healing, you watch how he does a work of spiritual healing as well. It's often found in what he says to people. Um, One of the ones that always rings in my mind is that command when he says, go and sin no more. Which again, at face value, it kind of sounds like you've got to be good now. Um, But actually what he's saying, he's just inviting people to walk away from their brokenness. Because Jesus puts on display, there's a better way of living than our naturally bent hearts are prone toward. It's a way of living that abandons bitterness and anger and contempt and selfishness and being judgmental and impatient and greedy. And it's a way of living that instead chooses to walk into a life of compassion and kindness and grace and generosity and love. And he doesn't just call people to live by some sort of impossible and unattainable standard. We know that Jesus gives us his spirit to live in us and work those things out in us. He invites us to a better way of life. But of course, there's something still coming. There's a future fulfillment of this prophecy. Because God promises that when Jesus returns the second time, our hearts will be completely renewed. The brokenness of the fall will be reversed and the broken and bent state of our hearts will be restored. We know here on earth we're gradually being transformed to more fully reflect the beauty of Jesus. But one day that transformation will be complete and those broken tendencies that plague us will be gone forever. So what is there here as far as finding joy goes? I think we're reminded that our joy at Christmas is not going to come from getting all the outward fixings right. The cleanliness of our homes, the state of the table, the manner in which the presents have been wrapped. Our joy is going to have a whole lot more to do with the cleanliness of our hearts and the state of our minds and the manner in which we treat each other. Because sweet desserts do nothing for our joy when they're accompanied by bitter tongues And delightful gifts do nothing for our joy when they come hand in hand with unpleasant attitudes. And a whole lot of Christmas carols do nothing for our joy when they're mixed up with having a short fuse or harsh words. So let's ask for a fresh work of restoration in our hearts this Advent season in order that we might truly know the joy. I want to finish today by acknowledging that Christmas for most of us is going to be a mix of emotions. There will be disappointment, nostalgia, pain, excitement. And that's because we're still living in what we could call the messy middle between the now and the not yet of the fulfillment of these promises. Jesus has launched his kingdom here on earth and we get called to be a part of that, but it's just not yet complete. We wait and we long for its climax where all of these promises are going to be fulfilled in fullness but in this messy middle this promise of joy it's not calling us to ignore or suppress our sorrow we're not naively expecting that as we embrace the promises of Isaiah that all of our sorrows will somehow be immediately overthrown actually part of our human experience is is that we grieve over the pain of life even at Christmas That's one of the reasons why we'll hold that blue Christmas gathering next week. 
It's just a way of actively creating space for those necessary emotions that we need to experience. They're hard to experience, but sometimes we've got to um, give space to them, even in this season of joy. But at the same time, we don't take that sorrow or that pain or that suffering as the whole measure of our reality. Our life is full of sorrow and joy. And at this Christmas time, we'll experience sorrow over all that has not been right this year. But we're invited to also experience joy in the fact that we're living in the kingdom of Jesus where all things are restored. It's here and it's coming in full. So this season, let's actively choose to chase the joy that Jesus offers us in the places that Isaiah reminds us that it's found. Let's pray. God, you are joy itself. And we want to draw close to you this Advent season in order to experience and be part of that joy. God, thanks for these words from Isaiah that remind us that this joy is often found in unexpected places. And would you, by your Holy Spirit, prompt us this Advent season to look for your true joy? Would you challenge us in those places we need to be challenged in order that we might not chase joy in all the ways uh, that the world around us seeks, but that we would know your heart and these places to find true joy? We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.